Greetings Europe, we are the Europeans and we're here to insert some more weekly tales from our continent into your ears. My name is Dominic Kramer and I'm speaking across the interweb to my good friend Katie Lee. Hi Katie, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I like that greetings Europe, you sounded a bit like a robot, like Theresa May or something. Oh, I wish we could just make this episode all about Theresa May's dancing, her two performances that she's given us this week. God bless her. What a woman, what a prime minister. Yeah. I was like, oh God, this is going to be so bad for her ratings. And my husband was like, no, it makes me like her much more because she's normal and weird. I kind of fall into that camp too. I really felt like she um, represented our entire nation in terms of our dancing skills in that particular performance. Two performances, double whammy of amazing dancing. For everyone who doesn't like her, it would have already confirmed her opinions, but she'll have won like 1% of public opinion through this. I think it was genius. You've had a pretty like celebrity week, haven't you? I've had a great week. I interviewed France's, uh, probably France's most famous chef, Anand Ducasse, on a boat on the River Seine over a glass of champagne. It was pretty rad. Um, He was really nice, actually. I wasn't expecting him to be. I was expecting him to be a little bit scary, but he was actually pretty nice and extraordinarily French. Um, We just sat down at this table and he, he didn't say anything. He just took one look at me and went... Emmanuel! Imagine I'm saying all of this in French, but I'm going to say it in English. Bring me two glasses of champagne. And then he just looked at me very intensely and said, there is nothing I hate more than empty glasses. And it was so French and fun. Oh, wow. Is he an alcoholic? No, he just, you know, he likes the finer things in life, wouldn't you, if you had 30 restaurants and more Michelin stars than anyone else on the planet? Does he? Yeah, he does. He's got, tw- he, well, he has had in total over the course of his career, 21, which is not bad. It's more than you. All right, don't rub it in. I did go to a fancy restaurant this week. Did you? Which one? Um, it's just over the road from where I live because it's been there for years and we never go because it's a fancy restaurant. And it was so nice. But they had a food that um, I... They had a d- food. They had a food that I didn't know what it was and I was like what's this in English Uh, because I thought it was the Dutch word and they were like no that is the English word have you heard of kohlrabi kohlrabi uh I'm gonna guess is it a fish no oh no Um, it's like a giant radish or a kind of a turnip yeah and I was really embarrassed because I was like, sorry, could you tell me what it is in English? And they were like, kohlrabi. And I was like, no. And I like Googled it, kohlrabi, from Dutch to English. And it said kohlrabi. I mean, if you think about it, fancy restaurant language is an entire different language of its own. So when I was writing about this, Alan Ducasse has opened a new restaurant on a boat, which is why I was interviewing him. And half of the menu I had to Google. Like, it didn't feel like it was in French because it's just... All of the fanciest words that you never use ever, all in one place on one page. That sounds stressful. It was quite stressful. But were you at the fancy restaurant because you were celebrating moving to Berlin tomorrow? Yeah, and when we come back, I will have moved house. So we thought we'd have one last hurrah. Did you eat the kohlrabi? We did, yeah. You, it was one of those restaurants where you didn't choose. Oh, that fancy. We can't only talk about fancy food and Theresa May's dancing. We've got to talk about other things, haven't we? We have got to, yes. Uh, we've got a really interesting interview coming up for you this week with someone that Dominic met a little while ago, Charlotte Bostrom. She is a Swedish journalist based in Amsterdam and we're going to be talking to her about nation branding, specifically how Sweden has done such a great job of making everyone think that it's some kind of paradise on earth. We'll be talking a bit about how Sweden did that and 
how much of it is true. But first, it's the continent's favourite segment. It has been a good week for European engagement after the European Commission received the largest ever number of respondents for a consultation with European citizens. That sounds really exciting. It does, doesn't it? Is this going to be more exciting than I think it is? Yes, it is, because the online consultation in question was asking for responses about whether the EU should stop the coordinated daylight savings clock changes. You know, the, when the clocks go back and forward in March and October each year. Changing of the clocks? The changing of the clocks. Um, so they received 4.6 million responses from across all member states. Um, mainly they were from people in Germany. Um, but 84% stated that they approve of putting an end to this practice of changing the clocks, which would be quite a big deal, wouldn't it? It wasn't a referendum, it was just a survey, but Jean-Claude Juncker wants to respect the result, particularly because there were so many respondents, and he is to recommend an end to this biannual clock switcheroo. So why do people want to get rid of it? Um, isn't it meant to lead to better productivity and energy savings? Well, perhaps, but there is a growing tranche of evidence that the change in the clocks actually has an adverse effect on our health. How? Well, there are various ways. Uh, for example, road safety. Driving between the hours of four and seven in the winter are apparently the golden hours of road accidents. I mean, partly because lots of people are driving home from work. <laughs> golden hours of road accidents. <laughs> the golden hours of road accidents, yes. Right, that sounds like such a, a nice thing. Oh, yes, it's lovely. Um, but that's partly because people are driving there, but it's also, it gets dark really early in the winter. So if the clocks didn't go backwards in October and we kept the summertime, for the whole year, then the evenings would be lighter and lead to better light for people driving home from work. Obviously, the mornings would be darker, which would make getting up for work that bit harder in the winter. So perhaps it's controversial for people who have to get up really early. But fortunately, I'm not generally one of those people. So selfishly, I think this is a great idea. This isn't a referendum. And I know we've had this debate in Britain already about the need to uh, respect democratic votes. But I'm not with this. I think this is a bad week because I'm totally against this. I really like the clock change. I like the extra hours lying in the winter. And I like all the small talk that it generates every year with everyone being like, isn't it nice how light it is in the evenings right now? And I think that's a really fun thing that I would miss. Is that a good argument? So you don't mind about the 25% um, increased risk for heart attacks the day after the clocks go back? <laughs> I don't think it's worth it for the small talk. Okay, sure. Also, I don't remember hearing about this. Who are these 4.6 million people that got to vote on it? Like, I keep a fairly close eye on EU stuff. How did I not hear about this? Uh, yeah, I mean, there is something a bit weird about it. That I think it was about 80% of the people that responded were German. So there was probably some kind of really proactive campaign within Germany amongst the people who wanted to scrap this plan but I mean there are some really good arguments for it even if it will make your mornings quite difficult uh, apparently they do think that energy would be saved because people are more likely to need the energy in the evenings they spend more time at home in the evenings than in the morning so if it's lighter later on then you won't need to use as much heating mm. I mean it sounds really marginal doesn't it but when these things add up then they do make a difference. This isn't definitely happening though, is it? Is it like maybe going to happen? Uh, no, it's not definitely happening, but it's going to be recommended to the European Commission. And then after that, each of the EU member states will have to agree within their own legislature. So it's probably quite a long way off 
and there are probably many hurdles that could get in the way at this stage. Also, I don't feel like any of the evidence is like totally foolproof. So I also maybe still need convincing, but it still has been a good week for EU engagement. I'll put it like that. Good week for democracy, I guess. Although bad week for me because I'm clearly on the wrong side of history when it comes to the clock change. It's also been a bad week for British and French fishermen. There have been clashes at sea, Dominic, in the English Channel. There's this thing called the Scallop Wars and it is back. Scallop? Scallop? How do you say it? Oh, I think it's scallops. Why would it be spelt scallop then? I'm going to go with scallop. Um, what happened was this week there was this kind of epic battle in the channel between French and British fishermen. Uh, you will be sad to hear that the Brits were heavily outnumbered. We had about five boats against 35 French boats and it got pretty ugly. Uh, both sides were throwing stones at each other and yelling and there was a bit of boat ramming which left a couple of holes in the sides of some of the boats. Why are they fighting? It is over. The aforementioned scallops. Scallops. These really delicious, squishy shellfish, which are pretty valuable. And uh, the water off the coast of Normandy, off northern France, is very rich in scallops for reasons that I still can't really work out why. Uh, There are different rules over how the fishing of the scallops can take place for Britain and for France. EU fishing rules are super complicated and I really don't want to get into them now because I think... Most of our listeners would just take their phones and throw them out the window. But as far as the scallops are concerned, French fishermen are only allowed to catch them off Normandy between October and May so that they don't overfish them and it kind of protects the supply of them. But there's a loophole in the rules and British fishermen, if they're in boats less than 50 metres long, don't have any such restrictions. And they're allowed to just come all the way up to the French coast, like within 12 nautical miles, I think it is, and fish as much as they like all the year round. So what's behind this fighting is that the French are saying, kind of rightly, I think, that that's a little outrageous that they're restricted because they're trying to be all ethical and like protect the stocks and the Brits can just kind of do whatever they want. It's not the first time that the fishermen have clashed at sea over it. Uh, And there are some talks in London this week to try and sort all of this out. But um, yeah, it looks like it's possibly going to come to a head because of the uh, B word, because of Brexit. It's kind of like a, a new dynamic in the row. The French fishermen really want Britain to leave the EU without a deal so that the Brits just can't fish in those waters as they please anymore. So we'll see what happens there. I really enjoyed listening to you hesitate before you said the word scallop scallop every time. Scallop scallops. (laughs) Um, But it was really dramatic, actually, seeing some of those scenes coming in from the coast of boats crashing into each other. It seems to be creating very high emotions. Understandably, I guess, because it's people's livelihoods. For sure. I hope they come to an agreement and all shake hands and give each other big scallopy hugs. We are now going to have a chat with Charlotte Bostrom, a Swedish journalist currently living in Amsterdam who I met through Twitter. Yes, I've turned into one of those people who meets people through Twitter. Don't know how it happened. Oh my God, you're an influencer. Oh my God, am I? No, I'm yeah, not. You're like 600 followers. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, that's really mean. 650. Um, anyway, Charlotte wrote a really interesting long read in the Groene Amsterdamer. So if you read Dutch, read it. Or if you use Google Translate, then read it. The Groene is one of the best and the oldest weekly news magazines in the Netherlands. And this article was looking at a rather expensive and maybe controversial phenomenon of nation branding with a particular focus on her homeland of Sweden. Uh, Sweden also just happens to have an election coming up on September the 9th. So we may ask her a question about what to expect there as well. Let me guess. A scarily successful far-right party, perhaps? Oh, God. Oh, God. Um, What do you think of when you think of Sweden, Katie? 
I think of really sleek design things that are much too nice to be in my house. And I think of quite good gender equality, as I think quite a lot of people do. On the internet, on Twitter especially, Americans in particular are often raving about Sweden as this kind of paradise on earth. But there was a clip from the James Corden on the Late Late Show, which I think, even though he is British, of course, it's an American show, kind of sums up the way that people do talk about Sweden. Here it is. Now, lots of news came out of Sweden today. And guys, this is going to blow your minds, OK? In Sweden, right, they... They burn waste in these gigantic state-of-the-art recycling plants and then they use that energy for heat, right? It's really cool, but there's one problem. They've run out of trash. <laughs> and they're now having to import it from other countries. Yeah, so to keep their economy running, they have to import trash. Kind of like Cancun does every year during spring break. <laughs> amazing. It's incredible. The people are beautiful. They've got no trash. Their fish even tastes like candy. Like, <laughs> nothing bad ever happens there. The worst thing to ever happen to that entire country is when the band ABBA broke up. That's <laughs> it. That's all there is. So yeah, we read Charlotte's article. As Dominic mentioned, you can read it in Google Translate. And I did that and it actually came out pretty good. She's been doing a lot of research into this whole process of how you go about building a brand for a country and why Sweden has been so good at that. And what she found was this like multi-billion industry around it. It's super interesting. So we thought we'd give her a call in Amsterdam. Charlotte, you are a Swede living in the Netherlands. Correct. Was it uh, the process of moving abroad that made you realise, hang on a second, my country has got this incredible reputation internationally? Well, it was a while ago that I moved abroad, actually. But I think I realised already the first time that I moved abroad, I moved to Italy, which is much more different than living in the Netherlands. So the contrast was bigger. And then already I noticed that people have very strong uh, kind of cliche views about Sweden. I've kind of always noticed that people seem to always like it very much. And the things they know or they think they know about Sweden, is it the same things you come across all the time? Yeah, I actually think that it's kind of correct. The kind of stuff that people have heard about, like that it would be gender equal in different kinds of ways and that we have a gender equal parental leave. That is very much like something that people have heard and stuff about being environmentally friendly this image that they've got, I wouldn't say that it's uh, something that this propaganda or, or branding machine has been lying about. It's for sure things that I still think is true, in a sense. Is it more than just the fact that you feel like the sort of maybe some of the more negative things about Sweden don't come across internationally? Exactly. I mean, this whole branding project, they haven't made up any lies or anything. Everything is true. It's just that they've chosen uh, what stories that they want to bring forward, right? And maybe not to talk so much about the things that are not going very well, like immigration and integration has been working out very well. And that Sweden is very segregated, not only when it comes to trying to make people from other countries a part of society, but also economically, like rich and poor people would absolutely not live in the same street, like here in, in Amsterdam, where I live now. You have social housing. We don't have that in Sweden. So that is not really part of the of the branding narrative, for sure. Could you tell us like a little bit about the history of when Sweden decided to start branding the, themselves as this good nation? 
I would say it was around the year 2000, and then this whole industry was kind of new, but the UK had already done it. They had this cool Britannia kind of program with Tony Blair and Spice Girls, and they were kind of one of the first countries doing that, and then Sweden was kind of the second country starting to care about nation branding, basically, so about 20 years ago. And like, what does it actually consist of? Tell us a bit about how, in practical terms, you go about the process of building a brand image for your country? You start with asking lots of people in different countries what their image is of this particular country and they are thinking okay they think it's like this we want them to think it's like that and then you get hold of a bunch of well-known expensive consultants there are not very many of them so they travel the world and they are dealing <laughs> with all the countries basically so it's kind of the same consultants that have branded all the countries in the world, uh, predominantly Simon Anholt, that's a British guy. And then they're going to come up with a plan on how you're going to do this. And a lot of times it is government organization is in charge of this plan. And a lot of times it is going to be implemented by making it seem like as if the grassroots are saying those things, even though it's actually like a top-down strategy. You want to make it seem like as if it's just the regular citizens that are tweeting about this or that are supporting this cause. A bit sneaky. So how do you do it? What kind of things do you do to make that happen? The entire idea is to sell a mentality or a way of life when it comes to Sweden and make the grassroots uh, do the work for you or make it seem like that. So they'll be using a lot of social media and often in a combination with real life events. So some examples have been like quite small and like funny things like the Swedish number. Sweden was the first country that got a phone number that people could could dial. Or there is a Twitter account that is hosted by different Swedes every week. Um, or there have been like virtual embassies. And this all sounds like very small things, and it is. But they have the skills to make people on the internet talk about those events. And uh, without the people noticing it, there will be a lot of people talking about this. And it's actually marketing, but people don't really see through that because it just seems like something that people like to talk about on the internet. Mm-hmm. And do you think it's mainly there to try and persuade people to visit Sweden? So is it mainly like a tourist instrument? Yeah, partly in the Swedish case, there are five organizations working on it. One is Business Sweden, so they want to promote uh, export, import. Then there's also the tourism organization, for sure. You mentioned gender equality and Sweden being held up as this like world example, world-class example for getting gender equality right. Does Sweden deserve all the praise it gets on that front? I would say that in a lot of ways... Sweden is a very gender equal country like it has the highest rate of women labor participation in the EU and the gender pay gap is quite small and it's was just listed by the economist I think as the best country to be a working woman in or something like that when it comes to the gender equal part I think it's actually quite justified to say that Sweden is a relatively gender equal country in comparison to others yes Sweden has an election coming up on September the 9th Um, I was wondering if you think maybe this picture that we all have of Sweden as this progressive place might be slightly shaken by the results of this election yeah there is this narrative in this branding story as a very progressive country and then you have this other side which is more like those extreme right people right so it's basically two different narratives and it seems like this extreme right parties the sweden democrats they will get around 20 percent last elections they got 13 percent so for sure 
they will grow, it seems, to get to your question. I think that that image has already started to change a bit. It's in international media. You see a lot of articles about like, oh, Sweden, not so great after all, because they have all those problems or challenges. So it seems like you start to get this alternative narrative in established media as well, I think. What do you think? Do you see only like success stories about Sweden? Don't you also see those more critical pieces that, oh, it's not so perfect after all? I mean, I'm personally, I cover immigration a lot and I'm seeing more and more headlines about like problems with integrating immigrants and that kind of thing. And especially kind of more scaremongery stuff from American uh, right-leaning publications. And I think maybe that's publications like running it because it's kind of a counter narrative, right? Like it's questioning everything you thought about Sweden. There's this amazing place. For sure. But I still think those stories maybe don't cut through to the general public as much. And there's such a strong sense of Sweden as this democratic, and progressive place I mean partly due to things like Ikea like everyone thinks of Ikea as being this really like friendly affordable democratic way of buying things that does sit really firmly in people's minds it's quite difficult to knock that out unless you're following the news really closely yeah again I need to stress that we are not sponsored by Ikea we talk about it an incredible amount on this show (laughs) it's funny how frequent that uh, pops up if anything's got to do with Sweden I've also noticed that yeah in this branding story so I also do my best to leave Ikea out but it's hard sorry (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I feel yeah. There's no getting away from IKEA. Um, I, I wanted to know, did you look at all into the Dutch efforts of nation branding? How did that compare? It really seems like they haven't given this a lot of thought at all. And they're claiming that there is no budget for this. And we did get hold of someone who seems to work on this, but we were like, okay, this is on another level because they said like, yeah, we brand our country with tulips and very big cheeses <laughs> that you can call a buy here. So in the Netherlands, I don't know if it's going to happen, but it's very premature. I guess maybe it doesn't need to happen because Amsterdam is so fed up with tourists at the moment. Yeah, you don't want anyone to come. No, stop coming to our country. <laughs> so welcoming. Yeah, we almost have like like a tourist ban here in Amsterdam, right? Uh, yeah. they're, do- they're doing their best to keep tourists away. So it's a bit unclear what they're going to do there. All this talk about cool Britannia, Dominic, that was in the 90s. What do you think our brand image now is as a country? Uh, crappy Theresa May robot dancing. <laughs> robot dancing. What else? I had this conversation with our mutual friend, Eleanor, earlier, and she said our current brand is hot mess, which I think is kind of true. <laughs> or maybe like I was thinking it was kind of like drunk uncle at a wedding. Yeah, I actually think in Europe or in Amsterdam anyway, our brand is drunk 20-somethings on stag and hendus. Oh, that's not good. I really do think that's quite a pervasive stereotype of the English, young English man and woman. I think if we could have either those people representing us as a national image or Theresa May doing her robot dance, I think I'd pick Theresa May. Oh, God. (laughs) What's happened? Got such great options right now. So I'm not really sure if my happy ending this week is real, 
Um, so sorry if it comes out in the next few days that this story is like a big, very early or very late April Fool. I thought we were supposed to be like fighting disinformation on this podcast. Yeah, which is why I'm giving it a disclaimer. Okay. Oh, great. Okay, I'll have to do. Um, so I am talking about this magical invention that was put on show this week um, from Bugatti in collaboration with Lego. Yes, a life-size, working, driving Lego reconstruction of the Bugatti. Bugatti supercar, the Chiron. What? Yeah, so it's literally a sports car made out of Lego. It comes complete with a detachable wheel and it's made of a million Lego parts. It took over 13,000 hours to construct. The car can only drive at 12 miles per hour, but it can drive. (laughs) I should also stress that it's not like entirely made out of Lego. There is a steel frame within it and some key car parts that help to make it move and definitely wouldn't have worked if they were made out of plastic bricks. But the seat, the wheels, the dashboard, the exterior, they're all made out out of lego and it therefore looks totally majestic and incredibly uncomfortable um, but that doesn't stop it being a most gloriously useless invention come marketing ploy from the italian car makers and the danish toy company why would you want a sports car that goes at 12 miles an hour because it's made out of lego i guess so i guess maybe this isn't a conventional happy ending it's not like <laughs> Your typical public interest story. I just thought it was marvellous and the video really makes it seem wonderful. Although perhaps it's a bit commercial of me to give some free advertising space to these two huge multinational companies. I was going to say, how much are they paying us for this? Yeah, nothing. Uh, But to make up for it, I'm going to give like a happy ending bonus shout out to the Den Helder Library, which won the award of Public Library of the Year at the International Federation of Library Associations and with good reason. Their architecture very cleverly uses a very old school building and mixes it with this really cool contemporary aesthetic. And it is really stunning. I want to go look at the photos. We'll post them. Well done, Den Helder. Good news, double whammy. Nice one. Let's post about it on our social medias. Where are they, Katie? They're all over the internet. They are on Twitter, at EuropeansPod. They are on Instagram, at EuropeansPodcast. And they're on Facebook. If you just uh, type in the Europeans Podcast, you should find us there. After all this talk of not talking about Theresa May all week, I do kind of want to play us out with the sweet sound of children's voices in South Africa, which is what accompanied her to her brilliant robot dancing. You must have seen this. If you haven't, go on the internet immediately and look at it. It's the best thing that has happened this week. And yeah, we just want to celebrate this beautiful, brilliant moment of pure British awkwardness, aka our national brand. Well done, Theresa May. Genuinely, you have made me feel kind of proud to be British this week. Oh, oh. Anyway, we should go. You need to go and pack for Berlin. I better go, yeah, farewell. Bye.